Good morning, everyone. First of all, I want to thank you for being here. And uh, thank you for asking me this weekend. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. I am Marianne, and I am a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon in al And thank you, Peggy. It's been great getting to know you and some of the other people. That, um, conventions are such wonderful social events, and I just love... Because we get programmed, but we also get you know, to, to know people. And some of us, in, when we first come into Al-Anon, have a little trouble with socializing and feeling. I want to thank the other speakers, too. Um, I heard some powerful messages, and uh, I appreciate your sharing very much. It's good sometimes to just sit and be still. There's... I want to read something from uh, the ODAP book before we begin. I mean, not the uh, ODEP occurs to change. And I'm just going to read parts of it. First I came, then I came to, and then I came to believe. The journey toward a higher power has been so gradual for me that I have been unaware of much of it. Like my fellow member, first I came bringing my body, if not my faith, to Al-Anon. Then once I was here, slowly I came to... And eventually I came to believe that I wasn't alone in the universe. There was and is a force, a drive, an energy that can give me the means to make my life joyous and productive. I need only ask for assistance and keep an open mind. I want to tell you a little bit about my life before I got on, why I came into Al-Anon. Kind of the middle part of learning about Al-Anon, uh, what I did at that point, and what I'm doing today. Now, I came into Al-Anon when I was 29 years old. That was in 1972. I'll let you do the math. <laughs> I like to look back at those other pictures <laughs> to remind me that I was once young. But even when I was a kid, I think I was always 40 at least. Um, I did not come from an alcoholic home. I appreciate very much today hearing uh, from people that do come from an alcoholic home because my, my three sons came from an alcoholic home and it gives me an appreciation of their perspective of what life was like growing up in an alcoholic home because mine was different. I was married to the alcoholic. My parents, however, did come from alcoholic homes. They both came. Both their fathers were alcoholics, and I learned that later on in life. And you know, it had that trickle-down effect. They were very negative. They argued all the time. Uh, he was my stepfather. Um, I didn't know my uh, biological father. And uh, since he didn't care to know me, I just let that go. Uh, they did argue a lot. It was, very, um, it was a very negative environment, and they were afraid of everything. It was unbelievable. And I realized that a lot of those fears were um, transferred to me. So while I didn't live with the active drinking, I did suffer some of those. I, I can remember being rebellious as a child and always wanting to get away from that. Um, my mother hovered. You know, and uh, they call them today, uh, my son teaches school, and they call them helicopter moms. <laughs> and, and I wanted to get away from uh, her always. Um, she ruled with fear, and she ruled with the wooden spoon. And when Bill said the other night, grab your seats, I did a lot of that when I was a kid. I can remember her chasing, whoops lost the mic. <laughs> I don't have a very loud voice, so. Okay. Okay, I'll try to continue. Can you hear me? No? Okay. That's the tank. Well. <laughs> Coffee break. <laughs> was so afraid to get up in front of people. And I can remember um, vividly in seventh grade, because it was so traumatic. It must have been almost like PTSD for me. 
that um, I was I had to get up and give a talk and that I had written and uh, I played sick for like three days before I and then finally I had to go to school you know and I had to do this and I was the last one and I, I can remember just trembling standing up there and I had it written out but I was so afraid um, no self-esteem whatsoever so uh, as I tell you a little bit who I am, you can understand why I married an alcoholic. Um, I was um, I was perfect, perfect. When I was in, uh, I was never popular. I was overweight. When I was in high school, I decided to um, lose some weight and uh, get my life together a little bit. Um, fixed myself up, and I was going off to nursing school. I was so happy to be going off to nursing school and to getting out from under my mother's wing. Now, my mother was a nice person, and she loved me dearly, um, but I just wanted some freedom. I was always kind of crazy and running. And uh, when I was in nursing school, I met this um, wonderful, handsome man, and he was in the Navy, and he was, um, I was in the city of Hartford in nursing school, and he was living there. Uh, he was brought to school, um, a couple of them came to school, and he was brought to me on a blind date. And <laughs> he was on the, in the submarine service, and he was studying to be um, in the engineering department, and they had what they call a submarine prototype near where I lived. And that was how that worked. Um, and, of course, there's a naval station in Groton, Connecticut. Well, we met and we went out and we eventually got married. And then he was selected for college by the Navy. And we went off to the University of Nebraska. Now, when we were first dating, I noticed that he always got drunk when he drank, but my friend's boyfriends didn't. But, you know, I thought, mm, you know how we are, you know, and then, of course, you'll fix it all if you get married and all that stuff that we go through, because we know so much. So, <laughs> anyway, I married him, and we went off. I was finishing school. And he was um, in the going and commuting every day when he was around to go to uh, Groton. And we went off to the University of Nebraska. And I didn't, you know, the drinking wasn't that bad. Um, he was a binge drinker at first. And when we got to the University of Nebraska, things were great for the first couple of years. And then I noticed he would go off every once in a while for a weekend, every, maybe every couple of months, and he would really get drunk. And I found I was pregnant with our second child, and I found that he, uh, one day he came back drunk, and I was really angry. I, I didn't know anything about alcoholism. We did not learn anything about it in nursing school. What they told us was, alcoholics are human beings and treat them as such. So I want you that are alcoholics here to know your human beings. <laughs> so, you know, that didn't really tell us a whole lot. Well, so I didn't understand the disease. I didn't understand what was happening, except that I knew that he had disappointed me. And I relied on him to make my life happy. Because that's what I thought it was about. My life was not happy, and I wanted to get married, and I was going to have the white picket fence and be happy. And now he was going through college, and I had all these wonderful, I could just see him in his uh, whites with his saber on his side and going down the parade ground as an officer. And that was my, that was my dream. This was going to be the beautiful life. Right. <laughs> Uh, anyway, one day he came home drunk, and I was furious, and he told me to be quiet and go upstairs, and I just kept at him and at him, and he dragged me, five months pregnant, dragged me up the stairs, and that was the first uh, physical abuse 
that occurred. We've probably been married about four years. I was in shock after that, um, but then he sobered up and he was remorseful, and so I let it go. I didn't know what else to do, and I loved him so much. And I didn't see it as abuse at that time. I'm not sure why, whether it was lack of education, low self-esteem, or what it was. Um, I just felt hurt, but I did forgive him because he was remorseful, and he asked for forgiveness. Well, we, he got a job and uh, while he was there, and I, I see today that it was his way of keeping out of the bars. Uh, Nebraska at that time had laws. They only sold 3-2 beer. So um, most of the drinking, uh, you know, happened other places. And the job seemed to help him. He didn't go out binge drinking as much. Well, then he decided when he graduated that we would go to Pensacola, Florida. He wanted to go to flight school instead of back to the submarines. Um, nothing much happened there. He seemed to keep doing the binge drinking, but I kind of partied with him too. And then uh, we moved back to Connecticut because he decided he didn't want to fly. He wanted to go back to the submarine service. Pretty soon the drinking uh, became uh, regular. The binge, the binge drinking ended, and he became almost a daily drinker. By this time we had three children. And it, I became concerned. There was more abuse. There was physical and emotional abuse. But always he was remorseful and apologetic. And so I accepted him. It was that Mary Graham. Um, I denied that there was anything else. Well, you know, the submarine service really controlled his drinking, and it controlled me too. It controlled my ability to wake up, to walk out of the denial, and to get some help. I had talked to a minister, and he uh, mentioned Alan to me, but I thought I didn't need them. Because every time the drinking started to escalate, the submarine went to sleep. And, of course, he dried out. Uh, he was always uh, looked at highly in the military. Of course, they had him in a contained environment, and he was sober. And then when he came home, the drinking would start up gradually. Start up, didn't start up right away. Started up a few days after. And then it would escalate. And this pattern kept going on and on. And I saw, after I came into Al-Anon, how this kept me sick. And it kept me in denial. Because every time I was ready to lose it, he would go out to sea. And of course, when he was out to sea, I had a wonderful life. I enjoyed myself. I, um, I went out with other you know, officers' wives did some crazy things. But all in all, um, I used to paint the house, I'd move all the furniture around, you know, I was a little type A, maybe ADD, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, I just loved my life when he went out. Well, then he got shore duty. And then the nightmare really began. And the abuse escalated, and there was no one to whisk him away. And his commanding officer went to the bar with him. They went out for their liquid lunches, and then they went to the bar after work. And sometimes he'd come home and drink, and I just asked him not to come home. So he quit doing that for me. Wasn't he nice? But he didn't quit drinking. I thought that, you know, he would quit drinking. Well, I started to get really crazy really crazy and desperate and heartbroken. And, you know, I heard the lady one time at an Al-Anon meeting talk about painting polka dots on their husband while he was sleeping. <laughs> while he was sleeping. And, you know, I thought about doing that kind of crazy stuff, but I was afraid. I was afraid that he would beat me up. 
There were incidents of violence. I had the police call. I was embarrassed because I lived in a small neighborhood and everybody saw. I was embarrassed that anyone would find out about him because he was a naval officer and how disgraceful that would be. It would ruin his career and I came to realize later in my own selfish way it would ruin my life. And it, I began to realize when I came into Elena that it wasn't so much about him, it was about me. My fears of being alone and my fears of disgrace. Because no one in my family disgraced anybody. Of course, I didn't understand. Well, one night what I thought would be his downfall and his bottom ended up being mine. Uh, he had bought an old car. He liked restoring things. And I did all the sewing of the upholstery of the car, and he did all the remodeling of the car. And then he took it out one night when he was drunk, and he flipped it. And then he just gave it away. He told the tow guy to take it. He never wanted to see it again. And I didn't understand that. I was crushed. And I thought to myself, what is going on here? He loved that car. It was something we did together. And that was my bottom. I then finally began to realize something was really wrong here. And maybe I was a part of it. Because up to this point, I had blamed him for everything. But I didn't know what to do anymore. I had tried everything. And I'm not going to go through the whole story, because then we'd be here all morning and I won't get to some other things that I feel are important. I, 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 I sat on the kitchen floor one morning and I was bawling my eyes out. My four-year-old was running around, Mommy, what's wrong with you? And of course I said nothing. <laughs> Even a four-year-old knows something's wrong with you when you're crying. And I prayed to God to help me. I was so distraught. And those words from my minister came into my head. And today I know it was a spiritual awakening. And I didn't know what it was then. Alanon. Paul Alanon. So I went to the phone book, and all I could find was AA. And bless their hearts, they were there when I called. And I'll always feel indebted to AA. Not just for that, but for whatever else we do. You guys and women that are out here in AA, I thank you for all you do. They said, I will find someone in Al-Anon and they will call you back. And in about 20 minutes, someone from Al-Anon called me back. And I was on my way to my first meeting. That woman that I didn't know spent an hour on the phone with me, convincing me that I needed to go to an Al-Anon meeting two days later. And I did. In uh, Montville, Connecticut, I went to a meeting on Thursday evening. I learned so much that one evening. And, you know, my head was pretty fuzzy, but what I found when I went night was hope. And that's what I needed. I didn't need to hear every word that was said. I didn't need to comprehend what you were saying in that meeting. I didn't need to love you all. I just needed to know that when I walked in that room, there was hope for me. And that's what I needed that day. And God knew that that's what I needed. This woman who I didn't know spent um, an hour out in the parking lot with me after the meeting. And I thought to myself, who would do this? Somebody I don't even know. And so all those things together brought me back. Well, I kept going to Al-Anon to get courage and strength. But I still was fearful. It took me a while. It takes us all a while. It's not a, you know, it's not an instant um, cure. And what I found was I had to call this woman. I had to talk to her, and sometimes I was afraid to talk to her because I didn't like what she said to me. But she still was full of love and encouragement, you know, and I needed this. I didn't feel loved. I felt like I was always brought up with the rod, not the heart. And my parents didn't know how to show love because I don't think that they received a lot of love. And my mother was whipping my butt with a wooden spoon and she said, I do this because I love you. Well, isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> how do you tell a kid, whap, 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 I love you? 
I don't remember a lot of hugs or kisses. That wasn't the way we were brought up. My mother was very German, and I think sometimes when I read articles, I was brought up by the Gestapo. Anyway, but so was my husband. And, you know, we'd line up in the morning and say, yes, sir, Lieutenant. Um, but anyway, the abuse went on, and I was afraid, and I was afraid for my kids. And I called my sponsor one day and I said, I know I need to leave here, but I, don't, I just don't think I can do it. I went to see a lawyer and then I broke down and I just, I couldn't do it. And I said to him, I said, are most people like this when they come into your office? And he said, no, most people know what they want. So I thought, well, you know, there's something still wrong with me. And I, so she said to me, why don't you get on your knees, Marianne, which was really hard for me to do, and pray to God to lift the violence. And I did, and he did. He lifted that violence for two years. And in those two years, I got strength and courage. And at the end of those two years, the violence started up again. And I knew then that I had to do something. The first thing I did was call a lawyer, and he was an AA. And he said to me, I want to tell you, Marianne, he said, if you don't do something, he said, you can lose your children. Not only will he lose the children and his rights, but you will too, because you've stayed in that situation and you've put them in harm's way. So I knew I had to do something. I finally got the courage one day to stand in front of him when he came in. And he was a violent man, and he was very strong. And I got the courage to stand in front of him when he wanted to take the boys out in his truck and say, you can't take them out. If you take them out in that truck drunk, I will call the police. So he backed off and went out in his truck by himself. I would have not had that kind of courage without this program. This program gave me the strength and courage to stand on my own two feet and to uh, take charge of my life. I found a job. How am I going to leave without a job? I became a detox nurse. <laughs> Was it glutton for punishment? No. It was because I wanted to learn a little bit more before I made that final move. Maybe I didn't know enough about alcoholism to be able to. So I had to do that one thing. I had gone to seminars. I had taught in AA. And people in AA told me, throw the bum out. Okay? Um, and, you know, AA people are tough. And sometimes you do need to hear what they have to say to you. But I wasn't. I, I just wasn't quite there, but I was on my way. So I became a detox nurse, and I have to tell you, I loved it. Now, I hadn't worked in years, so I was scared stiff to take a job, but I had called hospitals, and they said, you can't work here unless you take the um, refresher course. And that, but this alcoholic head nurse at this detox center said, sure, I'll hire you, because how many people want to work in a detox center? <laughs> So I was afraid, again, you know, those fears. But what I learned in Al-Anon was I had, God gave me the courage, the strength, and the ability, but I had to do the legwork. So the boss only gave you one-day orientation, but the head nurse said, well, you can come for a week. And I did. She said, I, you won't get paid. But I did, because it was more important to me to be safe in what I was doing than to get paid for it. So I studied, and I had my little three-by-five cards in my pocket with all those medications I see here, you know, and all their after effects and everything that I might be using, and I went to work, and I loved it. And when I came home at night, I hated it. I loved all the alcoholics that were in treatment. I got along with them, had a great time, but when I came home at night and my husband was drunk, I hated it. I learned not to hate him, but I hated what was going on. And I just told him one day, I said, I can't take this anymore. And he said, you know, Marianne, he says, I'm going to drink until the day I die. And he, did. he didn't die from alcoholism. And that really, I really believed him. That night I believed him. And I learned as a detox nurse that there was nothing more I could do.
I had done everything I could do. The, the difference between the patients and detox and him was that they wanted help, and he didn't. And that made the biggest difference in the world. When somebody wants help, you can be there to reach out for them. But when they fight you and they don't want help, what can you do? You know, and our nature is to keep at it and at it and at it. We want to cram the program, and I've had that experience down to or try to make everybody in the family understand what's going on. And we just can't do that. If they're not ready to hear us, they're... And I learned that lesson in Al-Anon. One of the beautiful things about being a detox nurse was last year I spoke in Mystic, Connecticut, and not far from where I was. And after I spoke, this young man, and when were you a detox nurse? And he said, I thought I recognized you, but I just had to come up and talk to you. And I was your patient. And he said, I was a kid then. And, I, and thank you very much for being part of my life. And, you know, that's a miracle. And that's one of the many miracles in my life and gifts that that young man was in that place at that time. And that he came back into my life. And that in some small way, I was part of his life for a very short time. And it goes so well with the theme today, our miracles. When uh, I, I did, I got the divorce. And the night I filed for divorce, I had a friend said, you should come over and stay. I'm afraid for you. And I said, oh, don't be afraid for me. Well, my husband came home drunk, and he tried to kill me, because he said, if I can't have you, no one else is going. Well, I'm not going to go through that whole night. It was a night of terror that you see on TV. And I was pretty exhausted from fighting back. I only weighed 110 pounds then. And he was straddling my chest, and I just had no more fight left in me. And I could feel the oxygen going out of my head. I could feel my head swirling, you know. It's, it's almost like when you faint or something. If you and I thought, I'm going to die. And he was choking me. And I prayed to God because I didn't know what else to do. And Alan on top me in my desperate moments and in my good moments. But this was a desperate one to pray to God. And I prayed to God and I said, God... I'm ready to go if you're ready to take me. And please take care of my children. And those hands left my throat. Well, finally, after a couple of hours, the drinking took over and he passed out. And I was able to gather up my children who were terrified in their bedrooms. And we left. We walked down the street and we left. We went and called. After that night, I promised God, I said, thank you, God, for saving my life and for saving that of my sons. And I said, when I can, if the day ever comes, when I can have all the time in the world that I need, I will go out and do you. In the meantime, I'll do what I can. And I've always remembered that promise. Well, I continued to work. I moved out, left him in the house. I got myself a place to live. Eventually I met another recovering alcoholic, and he was a counselor. Oh, here we are, a counselor and a nurse. Not the knight in shiny armor. <laughs> uh, he was a great guy. He was a good father to my children. And he taught me to laugh. Um, I tend to be serious, uh, but he taught me to laugh. He told me to lighten up, that, that life was good. But, you know, I wasn't used to having people do good things to me. I was used to being the one that did everything for everyone else and took care of everyone else. And he did, he was so beautiful, you know. And um, he, he treasured me, and I treasured him. Uh, and he taught me that life could be good. And it, um, I was astounded that life could be so good. But I learned in Al-Anon that we're entitled to a life full of uh, a life full of goodness and joy, and a life without fear and uncertainty. 
And, and I've heard stories this weekend about people finding their love. And, um, and, and I know what that's like. And I'm so glad that those of you that have, have done so are happy. And I know that there's an opportunity for others that maybe haven't found that right person yet. My children, uh, my two younger boys loved my husband. And they wanted him to be their father, so they asked him, and he did. My youngest boy, my oldest boy, um, kept searching for that father, the alcoholic father that couldn't be the father that he did. And finally, after he got old, um, he finally um, got kicked in the face enough that he didn't go back. Um, because his father was still abusive, and he transferred that abuse to uh, my son. I learned in the program that um, God won't give me anything that I can today. And I used to say that prayer, and I still do, um, asking God not to give me anything that I can't morning, but to be with me throughout today and to let him. Well, my uh, we had a good life. My kids grew up. They knew a father. We played baseball with them. We would speak together at meetings. We went to conventions. Um, and then one day he died. Um, before he died, the first husband died. And then uh, my husband, John, died. I often think back at some of the... Um, he left me with a lot of things. And uh, because of this program, I'm grateful for that, that everybody I've known and, and everybody that I've met and everybody that I've been close to in my life has left me with something. Uh, there's a reason for everyone being in our lives. There was a reason for me being married to an alcoholic because I was a lost child. And through him, I found Al-Anon and I found my higher calling. And my second husband taught me how to live. Um, and he gave me a lot of wonderful memories. And he had a very tragic life himself. He was one of those down-and-out people um, who one day's watch stopped working and he thought he had died. And he was picking, he tells about picking up cigarette butts from the street, you know, because that's how bad his disease was. Um, but we both recovered. Uh, and we both had a program and that we worked our own program and we worked a program together. And we taught our kids to have family meetings. So we sat around and we discussed issues um, and we talked about it. We each had a part in the family. Somebody had to cook dinner every night. They each had a night of the week. Whether it was peanut butter or jelly, whatever it was, if they opened a can of soup, we had to eat it because that's what we agreed to do. Whatever you make for dinner, that's what we're having for dinner that night. So they liked it best when mom and dad cooked dinner. <laughs> but anyway. Um, and I remember today, I'm so grateful. Um, we were married 17 years, and he's been dead 16, 17, something like that. But I, I am grateful for those 17 years. Um, they were wonderful years of my life, and we had a business together, and I am grateful for that. And I wouldn't have had any of that without Alan. So rather than saying, you know, I wish I'd had him longer, I do, in a way. I did uh, wish I had him longer, but I'm grateful for the fact that I had it at all. Because so many people go through life without being to have uh, that kind of a relationship. So I am grateful today for that. I went into service very uh, quickly. I became a GR when I'd been in Al-Anon about a year and a half because I didn't like the meeting I was going to. There were four women there. They were sitting. They were knitting. And all they did was be. So my sponsor, bless her heart, said to me, she was black belt. And she said to me, if you don't like it, change it. And I said, well, what, what can I do? She said, well, they don't have a GR. Why don't you be the GR? Well, I don't know how to be a GR. I was just came into Alana. And she said, well, you know what? I'm going to show you how, and I'm going to walk with you. And I became the GR. And I said, how am I going to get people into this meeting? She said, you go around to other meetings. You know how to do that, right? And you bring them. And I did. And the four ladies in their knitting left. And I never saw them again. But we had a very healthy Al-Anon meeting. 
And I needed that meeting because I could go to meetings during the day. I could get a babysitter. And nobody had to know I was going. And at that point in time, I had to. A few years later, um, she said to me, I think you're ready to speak. We were having our first convention, which was a one-day convention, and we had little workshops. Rather than have everything in the general session, we had little breakout sessions. She said, I think you should come and you should talk on self-awareness. And I said, I've never done that. How can I do that? Well, she said, um, I'm going to sign up. She said, you need practice. And I said, well, how am I going to get practice? She said, don't worry, I've already taken care of it. I signed you up for three meetings. And you can go and talk on self-awareness. Well, you know, at that time, I don't know who I was more afraid of, her or the alcoholic. <laughs> um, except that I knew I could rely on her. So, and I needed her. And I needed you people. So I did it. Whether it was out of fear or what it was, I did what I was told. <sighs> Next thing I know, I'm district rep. <laughs> then I'm the area chair. And then I'm the delegate. Now, I was the delegate when I was married to my second husband. That was a wonderful experience. And you know, service is so much a part of my recovery because you know that pamphlet, um, you get uh, busy, you get better. And I was busy all the time. Uh, when I wasn't busy with my kids and taking them to their sports and things, I was busy out doing Alan and stuff and I was riding with other Alan and people and she never let loose of me. And she'd call me up in the morning and she'd say, Marianne, do you love yourself today? And I'd go, are you kidding me? How can I love myself? I hate myself. She said, I want you to go to the mirror and look in the mirror and say, Marianne, you love yourself. Well, I got to the point where I could say I like myself. And it was years later that I could actually say I love myself. But see, all these wonderful things that happened to me. I got serenity. I learned responsibility. I learned responsibility for myself. And you taught me all that stuff because you taught me responsibility from day one when I had to go in. Since I was a smoker, she told me I could clean. And, of course, we could smoke at meetings back then, and I don't smoke anymore, and thank God we can't smoke at meetings anymore either. <laughs> but anyway, um, when I was a delegate, it was a fantastic experience, and I learned about Worldwide Al-Anon. And I was committed in the, in the conference. I mean, anybody, I, I just challenge any of you that are interested to stand for delegate. If you feel that you have the time, you have the commitment, and uh, you have the understanding that you need to have, that you talk to people that have been delegates, and there's so many, uh, and some that, that served when I was a delegate and we overlapped in time. Um, it's a wonderful experience and a, and a tremendous opportunity. Um, and if, you, if you're not thinking of doing that, then it's, you know, you can go to your local area. There's so much work to be done and so much help and growth that comes to us. Taking a meeting is service. Uh, working in the area, working on public outreach, taking literature to people, putting it in the libraries, all those kinds of little things are such a wonderful experience. Well, in 2005... Um, I was retired. I had sold the business a few years earlier. And uh, I had gotten into a lot of activities. But, you know, I had set myself up when I knew I was selling the business. But none of them really satisfied me. After I was really retired and had things to do, I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't satisfied doing so. So one day this gal calls me on the phone and she says to me, would you think about putting your name in as trustee? And I said, well, you know, I have thought about it, and I've been asked about it before, but I never could. And um, she said, well, don't think about it too long, because the resumes are due in tomorrow. <laughs> so I said, okay, um, I'll think about it. She said, well, you're going to have to call the office, because you have to sign the resume and you won't have time to mail it. So she told me who to call. And I did, you know, I, I thought about it, and I said, you know, I can do this. This is part of that promise that I made to God years ago. Um, I, I have the time now, and I remembered, I remembered that I made that promise. 
So I put my name in, and they said, sure, you can mail the signature. That could be late, as long as you email your resume. So I did that. And I went for my interview, and I was selected. Now, the woman that t told me to put my resume in, and this is, you know, this is the program. Um, she put her name in, too. She would already had her name in, and she did not get selected. And she was down there with me. We were down there together. But she was very grateful and called. Um, and, you know, that's the humility and gratitude. It's not all about me. It's all about what God wants. Well, after, you know, I, I was only in the program five months, and they asked me to go to Europe, Eastern Europe, on a three-and-a-half-week trip. And I thought, what am I going for? I don't even know anything. I've only been to one board meeting. Um, and they said, well, you have the background and the knowledge. Oh. Um, I had worked in the field of alcoholism. I had further educated myself. And... Uh, I did have the knowledge, and I did have experience. I didn't necessarily know what was going on over there, but um, but they said, well, we'll tell you on the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to several countries. I went to uh, Austria, Romania, Hungary, and Poland. And in Poland, uh, they have 450 groups. Do you know that? 450 LNR groups. And they were having their, I think it was their 25th anniversary. And we went out, we landed in Warsaw, and we went out to this Boy Scout camp. And it was a Boy Scout camp, the Boy Scout Signy and everything, off in this forest somewhere. And back home, I know a woman from Poland, and she never heard of Funka Poland, which is where we went. And it was beautiful, and all these people were there, AA, Al-Anon, Al-Latina, over 700 people. And they walked, and they came by bus, and they came by plane, and they came by train, and, there, and many of them walked the last couple of miles to get there. And they were so grateful that we were there. And they wanted us to talk. Well, I didn't have a talk prepared. I didn't know I had to talk. I thought I was going to like talk in a meeting, but not talk. So I'm in, I'm in this room, and I'm scribbling down my talk so that they can get it translated. We have a half hour to do all this. But it doesn't bother them. They do all this. You know, this kind of stuff to me, because I was always had to plan everything. And I've had to learn to be very flexible. It was a great time, and they were so appreciative of us. Um, and I have so many stories that I don't have time to tell. When we went to Romania, it was like being in Al-Anon 50 years ago. They had the 12 steps because AA had translated the 12 steps. They had part of the opening because that's all they had man and translate. They had absolutely no literature. And they had to meet up in a monastery because if you're an alcoholic in Poland, I mean in uh, Romania, you don't have a job and you never will. Even if you get sober, you never have a job. And if your wife's in Al-Anon, and they, um, I hope it's different today. They had people that were trying to work with the health um, to um, change attitudes, but um, that was the attitude in 2000. So we talked to these people, and we worked with them. And, and one of the guys from the AA who spoke English, he said to me, and you hardly ever hear this, how can I get my wife in Al-Anon? <laughs> So that was so wonderful. Well, when we came back to the United States and we gave our report at the conference, we told them about the fact that they have no... And uh, the conference voted that um, when we traveled to other countries, we could now translate into the language of that country three pieces of literature, and we could take that with us. We did that for Romania, but it came after our trip. We took, we sent it to them afterwards so that, I mean, think about it today because we have so much literature. We have so much information, so much help, and they had nothing. They only had the sharing of their experience, strength, and hope, which is what they had years ago. You know, God was with us every place we went. 
I've been in um, Turkey, Gaziantep, which is 30 miles from the Syria. And I prayed to my higher power, and I said, God, if this is, then I will go. And uh, I went, and we were safe. There was a demonstration while we were there. Uh, we opened the heart. We opened our hearts to Muslim families who knew nothing about alcoholism, but their boys had been sent to a treatment center. And we helped to start an Allen on meeting at that treatment center. And they were so grateful to us because in Turkey there's kind of a class system. And they were at the pits of the... And we were told by the um, doctors in the treatment center that they would never come to an open meeting because they didn't have the intelligence to do so. But they came. They had a person on the staff there that was an AA, and he called every one of them, and he, could, he asked to provide transportation. And I didn't know what to expect because I don't know very much about the Muslim religion. I have to tell you, I was old. And uh, I have a son that had a drink. That was one of the reasons I was chosen, plus my experience. They were so grateful to us for coming. They didn't know what was going on with their children. They didn't know that there was a place where they might be able to get help. And they hugged us and kissed us. And I was overwhelmed. Um, and they cried, and we cried together. And it was the most beautiful experience. I've been to China. And in China, you're ostracized if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict. And if your family associates with you, they are also socially. So if you have an alcoholic child in China, you need to cast them out, throw them out of your house, and forever be detached from them. And we heard a story from a lady um, who wanted to take her son. They, they were about, the doctor told us that she wanted us to speak to them. Um, they were going to take their son up to the mountain, and they were going and dig a hole and bury him. He was a disgrace to them, and the community had ostracized them. And this is what alcoholism does. Um, when we were in China, we were monitored. Uh, we have what they call them, uh, minders. They stand behind the curtains and listen to what you're saying. Uh, we had to have special invitations to be there and to be talking. We were in a hospital setting. We were in three places in China. Um, it's a communist country. I don't know how much good. I know that we touched some people's hearts. I know that we worked with physicians. And I know that we worked with people that really care and got the message. There are meetings there. There are meetings of AA there. Um, and I trust that one day the people there that need the understanding will find it. But there are so many that need that understanding. There are so many people in the world that need our help. We print the literature. We don't go in all the other countries. They have their own structures because they do that. They look to us for to us to get their literature. Um, and we give them the copyright, we give them the ability, we own the copyright, we give them printing rights when they request them so that they can print their own literature. And we review what they do so that we can keep um, But Al-Anon can be different other places. But there's so many people in need. And there's so many people that are hungry for Al-Anon. And that's what I go back to. We need to go to the people that want instead of trying to say don't. And there are so many people that are hope. And every little thing that you can do um, is a blessing to you people that we need. Not everyone has a wonderful opportunity. I spent my last three years on And uh, one of the gals said the other day she wanted to be president of Al-Anon. Well, I was president of the incorporation, not president of the groups but president of the corporation. And you know it's an awesome responsibility. And I took it very seriously. Um, and uh, and we've, we've done a lot over the years um, to reach out to people. My term ended in April, and now I'm chairperson of the executive And I'm still concerned about getting the message out. And on the executive committee, we approve the trips. Um, we get an itinerary. We understand. We have goals and objectives now. 
so we know why we're going to places, what our goal is, and uh, who we're going to be meeting with. And then we get reports on the outcome, which you can only reading the conference summary. Um, to me, all this has helped in my recovery. I feel that everything I went through in my life, the education I received, the business I was in, all led me to the places I had to go and the people I've met and the work that I do today. I also believe in rotating, and pretty soon I'll just be rotated out. Someone else will step in my place. And I know there's plenty of you out here today um, that are capable of doing that. And I hope that um, you will think about continuing on in service. I never plan to be chair of the board um, because it's not about me. I can't go into service and say, this is what I'm going to do next year because I'm so great and this is where I belong. That's not the way it is. Um, we offer ourselves up and we let God make the choices. And that's what I've done in every position I've been in. It's not up to me to make those choices. It's up to my higher power. I think I've talked long enough. I have, I could tell you about so many other things that I'd love to, but, um, uh, I think I've said enough for today. Um, I, I really appreciate being at her. Um, I want to thank you all, and I want to close with a, a saying. Well, it's a reading, and um, and I want to remind everyone that spirituality is the essence. It's not part of our program. It is our program. And it took me a while to understand that, that this is a spiritual program, and it's a spiritual way of life. There's no pieces. There's parts of the program that come together. There's tools that we use, but the program itself is a, is a life of spirituality. I heard Father Martin read this one. He was a lovely man. I had him in my home and respected him a lot. And I want to share this. <clears throat> when you're lonely, I wish you love. When you're down, I wish you joy. When you're troubled, I wish you peace. When things are complicated, I wish you simple beauty. When things are chaotic, I wish you inner silence. When things look empty, I wish you hope. Thank you very much, and I love you all in a very special way.